Well, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to talk about what, what Jesus did for us and how we can celebrate this morning. In the, in the face of cancer, in the face of death, we have victory in Jesus, amen? And we can celebrate this morning regardless. And so turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. We've been going through the book of Ephesians together. I hope that you had the opportunity to pick up one of these scripture journals in the lobby. And uh, these are free, these little bookmarks. Uh, the Soap Bible Study Method, and join along as we read through the book of Ephesians. Today we're going to talk about peace. Let's turn to somebody next to you and say peace. Say shalom. Shalom. You know, my family and I, we uh, went on vacation last week. And when you get back from vacation, everybody asks you the same thing. How was vacation? Are you rested? Do you feel rejuvenated? And I just tell them, you know, we got four kids. And uh, we need a vacation from our vacation because that vacation was for them. You know, from the moment that we left the driveway, it was, Mom, Dad, he's touching me. Dad, she's not, she's not listening to me. Dad, she keeps kicking my seat. Dad, and it was just like that the whole weekend. I, I tell you, this weekend, something was in the water. Our kids were going crazy this weekend. And parents, you know the feeling. You look to your kids at weekends like this, vacations like this, and you guys, 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 all I want is a little peace and quiet, right? Let's play the quiet game. All I want is peace and quiet. You know, in English, the word peace uh, has been very watered down from its original meaning. Peace has come to mean the absence of conflict. When you have a quiet car ride, that's peace. And it conjures up images of hippies like some of you in the 60s and 70s. I know you're in the room. Hippies in the 60s and 70s, you know, protesting the war. There's just peace. But peace is so much more than the absence of conflict. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And it means completeness. It means wholeness, soundness, welfare. It means health and prosperity. And it's an authoritative prophetic blessing upon a person. Can I show you something real quick? Uh, these are the ancient Hebrew letters. This is shalom. Uh, um, the ancient Hebrew is a combination. It's, it's a numeric language, and it's word picture. It's a word picture language, and this is the ancient Hebrew words. When you read Hebrew, you read from right to left. So uh, the first letter in shalom it looks like strong teeth, and it means it represents destruction or to destroy something. The second uh, letter in Shalom is looks like a shepherd's staff, and it represents authority. So these this is Shem is the first letter, Lamed is the shepherd's staff, Vav is the tent peg. It's so it's supposed to look like a, a tent peg, and it means to attach to something. And the last letter uh, represents water or chaos, and so. Deep hidden under the word shalom, in plain view for us to see, there's a possible translation. When we look at the word picture of these letters, we can actually put these letters together. And shalom could possibly mean to destroy the authority attached to chaos. And so when you speak shalom over someone, the, the Hebrews would greet each other with shalom, shalom, shalom. And as they would come and as they would go, they would bless them with shalom. You've ever been to Hawaii? And you say, aloha, as you come and as you go. The ancient Hebrews would say shalom to one another. And really, it's this prophetic, authoritative blessing. I, 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 I bless you. I, I pray that God would destroy 
the authority that is attached to your chaos. That he would bring total and complete peace to your life. Total soundness and health and prosperity. That he would bring wholeness to your life. And Paul, in the book of Ephesians, he uses the Greek form of shalom in today's passage. It's the word irene. I hope I'm saying that right. Some, some of you Greek scholars out there. I know this room is full of Greek scholars. You can email me later. But Paul uses the Greek form of this word. And we're going to read in Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 11, as he talks about peace with each other and peace with God. Starting with verse 11, it says, Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, that's you and me. If you're not Jew, Jewish in this room, you are a Gentile. You Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at a time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Why is Paul talking about circumcision? If you're like me and you're a dude in this room, you hear that word and you kind of wince. It's like, oh. Why is Paul talking about circumcision? Why are we talking about circumcision at church? Well, Paul's the one who brought it up. Circumcision. Yeah, it's Paul's fault. It's not mine. Circumcision was the sign of God's covenant with Israel that began with Abraham and his family. God actually instructed Abraham and his family to circumcise all the males in his family. And we see it in Genesis 17, 10 through 11. God says, this is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Now, can you imagine Abraham's face when he hears these words? What? This is the sign of the covenant? Can I just keep my toenails trimmed? Can I just, like, not cut my hair? Anything other than this. But God says, this is the sign of my covenant with you because... The physical removal of flesh symbolized how Israel was spiritually set apart. God's chosen people who were to separate themselves from the desires and passions of their flesh. It was a sacrament. We've talked about sacraments in the past. A sacrament is a physical sign of a spiritual reality. It's a physical representation of something that is happening in the spirit. We uh, practice two sacraments at our church, communion and water baptism. It's a physical sign, an outward sign of an inward work, something that God is doing in the spirit. And water baptism, in reality, has become the equivalent sacrament of circumcision under the new covenant. Where it, when you were to join the family of God, if you were going to be part of this community of the chosen people of God, the chosen people of Israel, you had to be circumcised. And now the equivalent sacrament that we practice today is water baptism. It has nothing to do with salvation. It doesn't impact your salvation, but it, like circumcision, is a sign of God's new covenant with us. And we have died when we're baptized. It represents that we have died and have been resurrected with Christ. We've been crucified with Christ. Our old nature has died. That flesh has been ripped away from us. And when we come out of the water, we are being raised into new life with Jesus Paul is writing to Greeks in Ephesus who have not been physically circumcised. And he's showing them that they were once cut off from God's blessing because they were not part of God's chosen circumcised people. But then he goes on to say this in verse 13. He says, but now 
in Christ Jesus, you once were far off and have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Notice here that he does not say, for he himself is my peace. Jesus wants to give you personal peace, absolutely. But Paul is talking to the church, and he is saying Jesus is our peace. He is the reason that you and I can be reconciled to one another, can have peace with one another. He is our peace. He has reconciled humanity together and has brought peace to humanity. He is the Prince of Peace, according to Isaiah chapter 9. He himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down. Somebody say broken down. Some of your translations say destroyed. In his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and his commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making Irene peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross and thereby, and thereby killing the hostility. Paul's talking about peace, but he's using lots of words and phrases like broken down, destroy, abolish, kill. Do those words sound peaceful to you? Perhaps it's because true peace may actually be, may actually be both constructive and destructive at once. What do I mean by that? Well, when Paul mentions the wall of hostility... He's referring to something very specific regarding the temple. The temple represented the place where God dwelt, where his people, where the people could come and access God's presence. But you had to be a Jew to get close to the temple. You had to be an Israelite to get close to the temple. Oh, you're putting the, you're putting the pictures up before it's time. I'm getting to this. Hold on a second. Just take it off the screen. Hold on a second. You got to be a Jew to get close to the temple. And outside, so the first temple was destroyed Uh, by the Babylonians, and when they constructed the second temple, known as the Herodian Temple, uh, they had different courts outside of the temple. Okay, let's put the picture up now. Here we go. (laughs) So you can see the, the pink that's all around the edge of the screen, that is the Gentile court. That's as close as the Gentiles could get to the Holy of Holies, which is the holy place, which is right here in the middle. And that is as close as they could get. Over here on the right, You have the court for the women. That's as close as the women could get. And then the orange right here that's around the perimeter of the the holy place right here, that is where the court of Israel could go. The men could go there. And then inside, only the priests could go in there. And into the holy of holies, only the high priest could go. And so there were all these division, all these walls of division throughout the temple courts. And Paul is actually referring to, to this image, he's referring to the walls of hostility, the, the barriers between the Gentiles and the Jews, how close they could get to the presence of God. Gentiles and women were not permitted to get close to the most sacred place of the temple. In fact, if you go to the Western Wall today, my parents just got back, you'll see that there is a dividing rail, isn't there? That right here, this is actually where the Western Wall would be. Uh, It would be right here at the bottom of the screen, the western wall. And there is a dividing rail about right here. 
and the women have to stay on this side of the rail, and the men could go, and there's a little underground, there's like a little cave, and it kind of goes underground, gets close to the, the holy place. But if you visit Israel today, you'll notice that there still is a dividing rail, that women have to be on this side, and men have to be on this side. And Paul is saying that he broke down those walls of division. That there no more, there's no more hostility. There's no more division anymore. But he has made peace. He is our peace. He has brought us, made us all one in Christ. Men and women, slave and free. We are all one in Christ. Jew, Gentile. In fact, Paul, he was arrested in Acts chapter 21. Verse 28 through 29. For what? For bringing an Ephesian into the temple. This is what it says. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him, Paul, in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen uh, Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So Paul really means what he says. He is saying the walls of division have come down. And he was even bringing Ephesians into the temple. Even though God's presence no longer dwelt in that specific temple. God's presence dwells now within the people of Christ. Within followers of Jesus. You and I, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God lives inside of us now. God initially gave the law to Israel. In order to set them apart and to make them holy. But what was meant for good, what God gave Israel for good, the Jews turned into arrogance and hostility towards Gentiles because they didn't follow Jewish, Jewish laws. That included circumcision and Sabbath keeping and food restrictions and food regulations. Now, imagine being a Jew and strictly adhering to the law all of your life. From the moment you're born, you grow up into a Jewish family, and no bacon for you. You you can't work. I mean, there's a certain, at the end of Friday, your Sabbath begins, and you can't work for a whole day. You uh, have to be circumcised at the age uh, at a young age, and you're following the letter of the law. There's 613 laws in the Old Testament. And as a Jew, you're following all of the laws. You're making sacrifices. You're doing everything that you're supposed to be doing. Only to be told by Paul that the Gentiles who did not have to follow these laws all their life, they now can inherit the same blessing as me? What would you be saying? That's not fair. That's not fair. I've worked my whole life following the letter of the law to the T, and now suddenly these Gentiles, just, to just they get to just skip into the blessing? They didn't do anything for it. They didn't, they didn't earn it. What about, what about me, God? I've been faithful all my life. I've been serving you all my life. For us gentles, we like that God included us into his blessing, right? Somebody say amen. amen. Say amen. Thank you, Jesus. But is it fair for the Jew who spent their life following the law? What about the people who... Let me ask you this. What about the people who accept Jesus on their deathbed? We grow up, I've grown up in the church my whole life. I've said no to things that have been enticing, right? I've, 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 I've sacrificed for the Lord. And somebody at the end of their life, 
they repent of their sin and they receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior and they get to inherit the same blessing as me? That's not fair. Come on, God, what are you doing with your grace? I get extra jewels in my crown when I get to heaven. (laughs) Turn with me to Matthew 20. Matthew 20. Jesus, it's like he was reading their minds when he (laughs) said this parable. Matthew chapter 20. This is the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Are you there? Here we go. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about a third, the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, You, go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went, going out. Again, about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one's hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. So he, this master goes out and he hires people at different times of the day. Some, some people have been working since early morning. They got up early before the sun rose and they were sweating it out before the sun even rose. And then at the 11th hour, he goes out and he hires more people to work on his vineyard. Verse 9, and when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. What? And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have been born the who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Oh, Jesus, why do you do that to us? Come on, for those of us here in America, we, something rises up in me when I hear that story. I've been a Christian all my life, and there's a religious spirit that rises up in me when I hear this, and then I hear the words of Jesus say, do you begrudge my generosity? Can I give, are you going to tell me who I can give my grace to? That belongs only to me. Jesus was telling people that God's grace isn't fair at all. It's not. It's scandalous. And we cannot, tell how God, we cannot tell God how to distribute the grace that only he can give. When we can't resent his generosity towards others who, may perceive, who we may perceive as being less deserving than us, which is a lie. Because at one point we were all lost. We were all far from God, all enemies of God. And God extended his grace. And people find grace at different seasons of their life, some early on. And some later in life, everybody receives grace at different seasons of their life, but it's the same grace that is distributed to all. And because of that, we have become one in Christ. 
God has leveled the playing field. And you and I no longer have any right to look at anybody outside of this church, to look at anybody inside of this church and say, I am more deserving of God's blessing than you are. He has leveled the playing field. We are all one in Christ. He has brought peace to us. He is our peace. Let's continue reading the last part of this passage. Verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, and whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple unto the Lord. Here's, again, Paul using temple imagery, like he did before when he was referring to the wall of hostility. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul is telling the Ephesians and the rest of us that we've been brought into the family of God and people all over the world who believe that Jesus is Lord, they've now become the temple of God, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. God cannot be found in a building any longer, not even in our building. You may feel the presence of God when you're here, but it's because the presence of God is moving among the people. And in and through you and I, brothers and sisters in Christ, We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And furthermore, we have to model our lives after Jesus, who is our peace. He is our reconciliation. He is our shalom. He is our wholeness, our health, our prosperity, our healing. He is completeness. And if Jesus destroyed the walls of division, then how come we have so much division in the church today? Our churches are divided by denominations. We're divided by race. We disagree on whether women should be in leadership. We have churches filled with poor people and other churches filled with wealthy people. Why do so few churches in America have diversity in these areas? We are sometimes, when you look at the church in America, we are still very divided. And I believe it's because churches in America, they have discipled people into becoming peacekeepers and not peacemakers. And there's a difference. When the walls of division are erected, when people bring up, when they build up walls of division and say, no, you can't do this, you can't come here, this is for us, this is for people who think like us, who act like us, We're we're a blue church, we're a red church. We build walls of, by the way, there's an election year coming up, and we need to start preparing now preparing your heart now for how you're going to respond to people who think differently than you. Because let me tell you, there's people sitting to your left and right who don't think like you think. Do you still believe you're one in Christ with that person? They love Jesus just like you. So begin preparing your heart now before election year hits, all right? (laughs) I'm telling you, we're going to be talking a lot about it, I'll, I'll bet. But when these walls of division are erected, peacekeepers, they keep their distance to avoid conflict. But we need more peacemakers like Jesus who actively tore down those walls of division. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5, 9? He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. 
There's a difference between peacekeeper and peacemaker. So for the rest of our time together, we're going to talk about how to become a peacemaker like Jesus, who is our peace. He is the prince of peace. How do we become a peacemaker like Jesus? Number one, peacemakers are ruthlessly committed to truth-telling. Peacemakers are ruthlessly committed to truth-telling. When they are offended or they're hurt, they communicate their feelings honestly. They speak, they speak truth in love because they know that withholding truth will never lead to intimacy. But peacekeepers, they ignore, disagree, they ignore disagreements, they ignore differences. But peacemakers unite others to a higher purpose despite differences and disagreements. They see, they're, they're not oblivious to the disagreements, they're not oblivious to, to hurt, to pain. They, they see it, but they call, they, they unite people to a higher purpose despite the differences, despite the disagreements. You know, when I was in my early 20s, I took jokes way too far. Uh, my roommates and I, you know, we're typical young 20 guys, and we like to joke around. We would tell crass jokes, you know, when it was just us together. But sometimes we'd be in a group of people outside of our apartment or in a church setting, and I just wanted to be the guy who one-upped everybody, and I would sometimes, most of the time, take the joke just too far. And people would look around like, ooh, that was weird. That was awkward. You know, and the peacekeepers in my friend group, they would just laugh it off. They would just, <laughs> oh, there you go again, Blake. You're a cool it, man. You know, they'd laugh it off, and they would never keep me in check. But God sent me a peacemaker in my life and told me that I was being inappropriate and I needed to watch my language. They told me that others looked up to me, and they were examining how I portrayed Jesus. So I need to watch my language and watch how I portray Jesus. And Here's the thing. They didn't call me out. They called me up. They didn't condemn me. They didn't shame me. They called me up, and they said, you are better than this. God did not make you like this. You have a higher calling, and I want to show you that God has better plans for you if you would give him your mouth, give him your jokes. And it hurt to hear. I was like, get off of me. Stop talking to me. But I'm so thankful for the peacemaker who was bold enough to say something in my life. When there's hurt and resentment, when someone offends you, peacemakers are ruthlessly committed to truth-telling. They don't avoid it, but they share the truth in love. The second thing a peacemaker does, peacemakers walk in forgiveness. They walk in forgiveness. Peacekeepers, they hold grudges and smile on the outside. Everything's okay. I hate your guts. I think you're detestable. But happy Sunday. Good to see you. They show up to family reunions and church picnics like everything is just fine when the reality is they're withholding forgiveness. They're holding a grudge. They're hurt. But peacemakers are different. When they have hurt others, they own their mistake, and they quickly ask for forgiveness. And when others hurt them, they're quick to forgive them. Some families are incredibly good at holding grudges. And some of you are thinking of your Christmases and your Thanksgivings right now, thinking, man, yep, every time this family member comes, it just seems like the same stuff gets brought up. They are good at holding grudges. 
Some people just don't ever let anything go. Forgiveness is one of the most defining traits of a follower of Jesus. God forgave us, so we are called to forgive. End of story. There's no buts or conditions attached. But, but they do the same thing to me. They've done the same thing to me a hundred times. Listen, you can set up barriers. You, can, you might not trust them, but you're called to forgive them. You're called to not hold a grudge, not let that fester inside of you. Followers of Jesus must walk in forgiveness in order for the world to be saved. It is literally life and death because the world is looking at the people of God. They're looking at the church to see how does a follower of Jesus forgive others? How do they let things go? And when they see the people of God holding grudges, and when they see the people of God walking in resentment and contempt for one another, they go, they're no different than the rest of us. What, what's the big deal? But it is the love of God and it's the forgiveness that we show to others that is attractive to the world. That is what people desire. That's the type of community they want to be a part of. That's the type of family they want to be in. I want you to close your eyes for a moment. Trust me, I'm not going to throw anything at you. Close your eyes and take a moment right now to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal any unforgiveness inside of you right now. Who is the person that you need to forgive? Maybe even for the 100th time. Who's the person you need to forgive? Holy Spirit, would you show us the unforgiveness that we're harboring in our hearts? The poison that we've let into our system that is tearing our body apart, it's tearing our mind, it's, it's wreaking havoc on our sleep. It's causing us to protect ourselves against other people when we're supposed to be loving and, and open to them. Father, show us. Where's the unforgiveness? Who do we need to forgive? We're going to pray for this at the end of, of service. You can look back up at me. If you're taking notes, make a little note. Write that person's name down. The third thing is this. Peacemakers are humble enough to pray for people who hurt them. They're humble enough to pray for people who hurt them. When people hurt us, the point of praying for them isn't so that God changes them, although sometimes does it. But sometimes when we pray for somebody who hurts them, God, go get them. God, change them. Show them how terrible they are. Show them how they've hurt people, God. Bring them to their knees. Make them suffer. You be my judge, God. Bring justice upon them. But that's not the point of praying for people who hurt us. The point of praying for people who hurt you is that God would change your wounded heart. That he would change you. Because let me tell you, I promise you that God will heal your heart if you choose to humbly pray for those who hurt you. He will bring healing to your heart. You won't look at them the same. You still might not trust them. You still may have boundaries set up between you and that person. But your heart will be open. And you will be able to release forgiveness where you couldn't before. But when we pray for people, it's not about God changing them. Although I hope God touches them. The point of it is that God would touch you. He would change your heart. He would speak to you. 
So can we be a church that is humble enough to pray for those who hurt us, who disagree with us? And the last thing is this. Peacemakers pursue reconciliation at the risk of their own discomfort. Peace is something you have to pursue. It doesn't just happen. 1 Peter 3.11 says, seek peace and pursue it. Did you know the conflict happens automatically? You don't have to try for it. It's, it's coming after you whether you like it or not. You're going you're gonna to disagree with people all day long. You're going to experience conflict. But peace has to be pursued. You have to seek after it. Now, avoidance isn't peacemaking. Avoiding conflict will never build intimacy. You will never grow closer to your sister by ignoring her. You will never reconcile with your dad by not going home for Christmas. You will never grow closer in your marriage by pretending that there's no conflict. Time heals all wounds, Pastor. It's been five years. We haven't said anything about it. And I think she's starting to forget. No, she's not. And you guys remember there was a little advertisement as you come into Afreda. It was like the jewelry store in town did a little ad and it said something. It was like, get her a ring. She'll forgive you. It's like, whoa, that's messed up. (laughs) That won't work. That won't work. Sometimes the best way, sometimes the best way you can build peace is to embrace confrontation. This is what I mean by peace is sometimes both constructive and destructive. You have to, you gotta, you gotta stir some things up sometimes in order to make true peace. You gotta tear some walls down. You gotta embrace confrontation sometimes. You gotta enter into a hard conversation in order to experience true peace. Solomon said in Proverbs 10.10, now this guy, the Bible says is the wisest man who ever lived. People who wink at wrong cause trouble, but a bold reproof promotes peace. Yikes. A bold reproof promotes peace. In an effort to keep the peace, peacekeepers, they wink at sin and wrongdoing rather than reproving them. But peacemakers understand that peacekeeping must first be disruptive in order to allow for true peacemaking. So they speak up. They anticipate discomfort. And they hang on because they know that sometimes it has to get worse before it gets better. Well, welcome to therapy. My mom's a a counselor. If anybody needs help, no, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to put anything on her plate. (laughs) Sorry, mom. Sometimes it has to get worse before it gets better. And we, as peacemakers, are called to anticipate discomfort, knowing that the Holy Spirit will never leave us, that he will give us the words to say at the right time. But the goal for a peacemaker is reconciliation. It's reconciliation. It's to be one with this person once again. The goal isn't to avoid conflict and to get along when you're in the same room. No, the goal is reconciliation. Because Guys, look to your left and your right real quick. I hope you like each other because you will be with these people for eternity. (laughs) What we do at church, the peace that we practice in this place before we enter heaven is practice for eternity. 
Some of you, when you think of heaven, you think of being alone on a beach at sunset. Oh, boy. I'm sure those moments have come in heaven. But listen, when I read the Bible, it describes a garden-like city filled with every tribe, every tongue, every nation. There's going to be people up there. You're not going to be the only one in heaven. I'm sorry. There's people up there. And what we do now is practice for eternity. Now, there's no sin in heaven, right? There's no, there's no tears in heaven. But in order to be truly reconciled for, G, what, for what Jesus said, that your, that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. If we want this place, if we want the community of God to look like it looks in heaven, we have to anticipate discomfort at times. We have to become peacemakers whose goal is reconciliation. Not to spite somebody, not to, you don't approach somebody to shame them and tell them how wrong they are and make them feel bad, but instead you approach someone because you truly love them and want to be reconciled to them and want the best for their life. I'm going to invite Christina to come up as we close. And I'm going to invite uh, our prayer team to come up. We've asked a few people, the darts, I think Jethro asked you guys, Jethro, if you're in the room, our prayer team, would you just come Stand in the front here. Maybe somebody over here. Yeah, Dormeyers, thank you. Jesus' death on the cross not only brought you reconciliation with God, Jesus also reconciled us to one another. He's not only your peace, he's our peace. Our shalom. He brought us together with wholeness and health. We are made complete together in Christ as one body being built to glorify God. We are in this together. We're stuck together, family. I am yours. You are mine. We're part of the same body. We are the body of Christ. Jesus is the chief cornerstone, but we are all built into the same temple of the Holy Spirit. I want to pray this morning for true peace to happen within our church. And I want to ask that as we were praying earlier for the Holy Spirit to identify somebody in your life that you may need to forgive or you may need to reach out to and ask for forgiveness. I want you today to be bold, to stop being a peacekeeper and be a peacemaker and schedule a coffee meeting today or make a phone call. Don't put it off any longer because unforgiveness will fester inside of your heart. Like I said before, it'll keep you from being open to others. It'll keep you from trusting others. It'll wreak havoc on your sleep. And God wants to deal with unforgiveness today. Make that phone call. Send that text message. Schedule that coffee meeting if it needs to happen face-to-face. But make reconciliation the goal. And like I said, you don't have to trust that person. You don't have to, you know, get rid of the barriers that might protect the health of the relationship. But you are called to forgive. You're called to show them the love that Jesus showed to you when he forgave you for all of your sins, past, present, and future. Would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, we ask, Prince of Peace, that you would be our peace this morning, that you would bring reconciliation and oneness to this body. Lord, that you would continue 
like you did, tearing down the walls that we put up. God, you tore down the walls of hostility. God, you made us all one in Christ, and we repent for erecting those walls again, for making more barriers, more ways to get distant from the people that you so love, the people that are called to be our brothers and sisters, our family. God, we pray that you would give us the courage, the humility, and the grace to let go of unforgiveness. I believe some of you are going to experience true healing, physical healing, because you release unforgiveness today. I believe that some of you are going to sleep better when you release unforgiveness today. I believe that you are going to see others in a different light when you release unforgiveness today. God wants to change you this morning. So can we just bring down the lights a little bit? And I want us to just sing the chorus of Oh Praise the Name. And I want to invite you, if you need prayer, just find a couple up here and, uh, and meet with somebody. We're going to, they'll stick around here after church as well, but let's just sing the chorus of Oh Praise the Name.